Good to see you all today. If you have a um, Bible, if you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We have been in a uh, mini-series leading up to Easter on uh, victorious living. And uh, one of the things that uh, you cannot miss um, when speaking about victorious living is the call to pursue uh, Christian unity. Uh, There is no victory in the Christian life apart from unity within the body of Christ. And we want to talk a little bit about that today and how Uh, what Christ accomplished on Calvary uh, established a foundation for us to experience uh, real unity in the body of Christ. So let's um, look to God in a word of prayer. Our Father, in Jesus' name, we we are thankful uh, because of what you have accomplished, uh, what you have paid for with the blood of your Son, Jesus. Father, we're thankful for the, the church, the body of Christ, and, and how you have recreated us, and how you are renewing us after your image and likeness, in the beauty and splendor of your character. Father in heaven, as we, as we look at your word today, uh, please teach us um, some things about Christian unity and, and how the death of Jesus Christ uh, made Uh, that reality and makes that a reality every single day, how we are called to pursue that which you have established by your Spirit and to maintain what uh, he has uh, bought um, with his blood. Father in heaven, uh, please help us to comprehend the Scripture. Please help me to speak clearly and correctly. And uh, we pray that your Spirit as always, would be working your word in our hearts, transforming us, renewing our minds, changing our lives, and making us more like your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we look to you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I would direct your attention to Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll be reading beginning at verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Please hear God's word. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law and of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Pursuing Christian unity. This passage goes over our past, our present, and our purpose, and perhaps you know some basic things about the book of Ephesians, uh, which are instrumental and important, essential for interpreting uh, this work. Uh, It's helpful to know that in the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, there is only one commandment, which we'll look at in a minute. There is no other imperative in these first three chapters. Uh, But the last three chapters are full of all kinds of imperatives, and theologians call that the indicative and the imperative. The indicative points to what God has done, and the imperative points to what we're called to do, and one is built on the other. And as soon as we separate those things from one another, we become legalists and Pharisees and um, self-savers, which all things are um, odious to God and never work. Not only that, but the book of Ephesians begins in in a worship service and ends on on a warpath. It begins in worship, blessed be the God, and it ends in be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might and wrestle against wicked spirits and powerful dark forces and Satan himself with the armor of God. And this morning, I want us to look uh, briefly at uh, pursuing Christian unity as a way to experience victorious living. This passage begins with the word therefore, which throws us back to verse 10. Um, Therefore, remember... That's the one commandment in these first three chapters is to remember what you used to be apart from Christ and now what you have become in Christ. It's important for us to remember. We come to a table after the preaching of the Gospel where we remember the death of Jesus Christ. We're called in the pastoral prayer to remember where God found us. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, Uh, the reason why Israel went out into exile. Uh, The Bible says in two places in Ezekiel 16, verse 22, and I believe verse 43, it's because Israel forgot where God found them when they were sinning against Him. It's because they didn't remember where God found them. And in order for us to, to understand this passage properly, we're called to remember. Therefore, remember. Um... And the therefore is there because in verse 10 it says, for we are His workmanship, God's workmanship. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so God, God, by His rich mercy and by His great love and by His profound grace has saved us and brought us into communion with Himself And He has called us to walk in good works. 
He has called us to walk in good works. And, and Ephesians, as a, as a whole from chapter 4 uh, through chapter 6, it, it lays out uh, many of those works we are called to walk in. Chapter 4 begins, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, which God has given to us. And that calling uh, includes a, a walk with all humility, gentleness, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another has to do with tolerating one another. Um, we've all got our stuff, right? We've all got our baggage. Amen, somebody. Everybody's got their baggage and we're called to tolerate. But not simply tolerate, but it says bear with one another in love. It's one thing simply to tolerate folk. It's another thing to deal with one another's stuff and still endeavoring to love them in spite of some of the things that we notice about our brothers and sisters in the Lord. You can look at all of these passages. We'll look at them a little bit later, but um, we're called in chapter 5. If you look at chapter 5, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. And throughout this, this whole um, uh, epistle in the last few uh, chapters, and look at chapter 5, verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. And so chapters 4 through 6 uh, delineate and highlight uh, what it means to walk in good works. And in order for us to walk in good works, chapter 2, verse 11 teaches us that we must first remember what we used to be in the flesh. Gentiles, in the flesh. Subject, as it says later on in Ephesians, to sensuality. Subject to sexual sin. Subject to impurity. Subject to greed. Subject to idolatry. Subject to a life of not repenting. That's what we all were as Gentiles, as in the flesh, as uncircumcised of heart. And uh, we were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, hopeless and godless. You know, we can... Um, think about the great sacrifices that some people have given up to follow Jesus. Some people think that they're better off without Jesus. That they have all the wealth and all the women and all of the uh, ways that they can just do whatever they want to. They can live it up. But our life in the flesh was never better without Jesus. You know, everything may seem better without Christ until you stop breathing. Then you wake up and realize what your life was meant to be and how you missed, you missed out. What, what Paul points out here is that when we were outside of Christ, our past was bleak. We didn't have God. We didn't have hope. We didn't have Christ. We didn't have promises. We were way far away from our homeland, 
with God. Strangers, alienated. We were lost. And we always will be lost apart from Christ. And Paul means for us to let that reality settle in. Let it settle in what we used to be, enslaved to all kinds of sins and ways, ungodliness, living a hopeless life. Because when, when we were in that particular situation, that's where God found us. He didn't find us all cleaned up and polished and looking good and smelling good. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, it's when we were ungodly. It's when we were weak. It's when we were sinners. It's when we were God's enemies that Christ Jesus died for us in order to reconcile us. And so by starting here, Paul means to motivate the church with love. The love of Christ for lost people. The love of Christ for ungodly people. The love of Christ for hopeless people. People who have nothing to redeem them. Nothing to bring to God. We sang about it. Nothing in my hand I bring. There's nothing we could have brought to God. We were empty. We were void. Formless and dark. We were lost and dead in our transgressions and sins. We had no redeeming quality at all. Nothing lovely to offer ourselves to God. Just sin, rebellion, iniquity, perversion. The very things God hates is what we had given ourselves fully to. And that's all we had to offer to God. And in that particular state, as he speaks uh, to the Gentiles, but he picks up to the Jews as well later on, but he he says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, something's happened in Christ Jesus. Something happened when, when you heard the message of salvation. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You and I were brought near because Jesus spilled His blood on the cross. He had to die. And, and it's interesting the way He puts it. We'll see how the order in which He puts it we were brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace who has made us both one. And what Paul emphasizes as, our, as a first, as a first uh, level uh, when he talks about our present is that Jesus by His blood has brought us to one another. He emphasizes that first before he starts talking about reconciliation to God. He emphasizes how He has made us one and has established peace between people through the blood of Christ. And perhaps that is the, that is the right way of looking at things. If you think about it, in 1 John chapter 4, uh, the Bible says we love because He first loved us. And it's not talking about we love God, because He first loved us, He's talking about in that context, we love one another because God first loved us. In 1 John 4, it says we love because He first loves us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so there is this call to oneness that Jesus brought about, this call to peace by his blood, and it was a call to bringing people together. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed in his high priestly or high prophetic, however you want to see it, but it's a, it's a great prayer. In John 17, verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so Jesus prays upon his death that that God would make his people one so the world would believe the gospel. And so what's being emphasized here when it talks about how Jesus by his blood has brought us near, brought us together, and, and he is our peace and has made us one, what's emphasized is this calling to be used together as one man with one mind fighting side by side for the faith of the gospel. That because Jesus Christ by his blood has brought us together from different nations, it's a call to evangelism. It's a call to mission. It's a call to prioritize the gospel in our lives and the proclamation of the gospel in our lives. That's why God brought us together. That's one of the key reasons. So the world might know that Jesus Christ was sent by God, that God loves the world enough to give up his son. And the world gets that memo when they see unity in the body of Christ. Where there's disunity, it short circuits all of our outreach and evangelism. It breaks down all of the channels. It shuts down all of the signals. And the world looks and says there's nothing different about these people than the people in the world. When I worked at Smith Klein Beach and we all got together from all nations and backgrounds because we were believing we were creating drugs that were going to help people, whether we did or not is up in the air, but, but we all got together and, and we were there because we wanted to be number one. Merck was number one and we wanted to be number one and it was about the, it was about the money and it was about the prestige and everybody was able to get on the same page because of those things and they all pass away. And so God has brought us together in the body of Christ from all nations and backgrounds and walks and cultures because he has brought us together to give ourselves to something that will never, ever pass away. How much more zeal should you and I have? Christ has brought us together by his blood. He himself is our peace. He's the one who brings us together. He's the one who who takes away the hostility, who takes away the war. When we look at the cross, whoever you're at odds with, whoever you have arguments with, wherever there's a fracture, Jesus invites us to look at the cross, to look at the blood of the Savior spilled on our behalf, and let that resonate, let that wash over you, and let that move you to come closer to one another because Christ has come closer to you and I. It says he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There was, many theologians believe and and have shown that there was a wall 
in the tabernacle, in the tent, or the temple rather, uh, there was the, the court of the Jews, and there was the court of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were farther away from the court of the temple itself proper. And there was a wall there that, that basically gave a message to the Gentiles that if you cross this line, you're dead. Now that's a real wall of hostility. <laughs> you can come in the court, but don't come in here. It's like the, the Gentiles were outside of the door, and the Jews were where we're sitting. And you better not open the door, or you're dead. Now that's, that's some serious worship, right? <laughs> That'll make you think twice about heaven and hell. Uh, but, but it says that Jesus, by His blood, has broken down that wall, that dividing wall of hostility. And He did it by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Notice the way it's stated. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. It says so in Matthew 5, 17. I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. But it's the law expressed it's the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. It's those laws that segregated Jews from Gentiles, like the dietary laws, like the polyester laws. You know, you couldn't wear a garment unless it was all one, one thing. You know, it had to be wool. It had to be linen. Don't mix them up. It's no good. All that stuff segregated people and um, couldn't go to Value City and get a suit in the land. This suit is made of polyester. I would have not been welcome. Little things like that. You may think they're insignificant. They weren't to the Jew. If you read the book of Leviticus, one message you get from the book of Leviticus is that God is picky. <laughs> he's holy and He's picky. But He, he had those laws specifically to teach His people their need for a Savior. Their need to be separated from the world around them. There were special days that you had to obey, special feasts that you had to attend. And all of those things segregated the Jewish population from the Gentile population. And the Bible says that Jesus abolished, He, he broke down those walls that were lifted and raised to divide and to distinguish the Jewish nation from every other people. And the reason he did it was to create a brand new man. It says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace up until this time, there was only Jew or Gentile. But since the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, there's a brand new thing we call the church. A brand new man. A brand new creation. You know, when God created the world, you had all the animals and all of the flowers and the plants and all of the insects and all of the things in the ocean and the birds flying and man hadn't been created yet. And then God created a brand new man. And we messed that whole thing up, didn't we? And then, then Jesus came and created a brand new man. He started us over. He gave, gave us a brand new Genesis. And He created in Himself one new man. You've been made new. You have no reason to be that blue. Isn't that true? For me and for you? This is good stuff. You know there's a song, I am redeemed, 
I've been bought with a price, right? Jesus has changed my whole life. Is that true about us? It certainly is, according to the Scripture. And so what that speaks to us about in relation to Jew and Gentile, in relation to us here, it, it speaks that there's, there's, there's a sense in which when you come to Christ and you've been brand new, Jesus Christ cuts across every single culture. Isn't that true? Everyone, no matter where you come from, no matter what your culture is, you've got to abandon part of your identity, of your cultural identity, to come to Jesus. You really do. Um, you've got to leave something behind in order to come to Jesus and be brand new. He's making something brand new, something glorious. And he calls us to abandon, not everything, but there are certain things that culturally go against the gospel, no matter what culture you might be from. And God calls us to, to change. He causes, causes us to abandon. Look at what Paul said. Um, now, this is something I, <clears throat> I wouldn't have wrote necessarily. Um, that's probably why God didn't ask me to write any Bible. Uh, but um, in, in Titus chapter 1, here's an interesting um, statement. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans, here's a racial statement, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Wow! I didn't know it was in the Bible. Did you know that was in the Bible? I mean, I knew it was in the Bible. But did you know it was in the Bible? Holy Spirit inspired. Paul calls a whole ethnic group out. Says this is the way they always are. They need to abandon that stuff. You and I have to think soberly, seriously, about our own selves, our own identity, our own culture. You know, sometimes you may say of yourself, I'm an introvert, I'm an extrovert. That's just the way I am. But God calls you to be a lovevert. You know, someone one time wisely said that Jesus was not an introvert or extrovert or sanguine or melancholy. He was all of those things whenever he needed to be. And you and I have to learn to adjust ourselves in order to love one another. We have to learn how to step outside of our cultural boundary to love one another. And, and we're all in this together. We're all headed in that direction. You may re recall being on the expressway and there's four lanes of traffic and we're all going in one direction. That's the way it is in the body of Christ. And you may feel like particularly in your particular culture or your particular um, bend that, that you seem like you've had to bend a lot more than everybody else has. Isn't that right? Let's be honest, folks. Come on. Um, I wish I could get an amen up here. I don't really need it, but I wish you know what I'm saying. Um, but sometimes particular cultures feel like they have had to bend more than other cultures. We're on this road to glory, and God calls us to be like Christ to one another. He calls us to love. He calls us to love beyond our culture, outside of those boundaries, not to 
ignore the fact of who we are, but there's, there's something about when, when, when God himself said through Paul that in Christ Jesus there is no Jew or Greek or male or female or bond or slave, and he's saying that all of us got justified one way. Regardless of where we came from, where we were born or where our ethnicity was, everybody got saved the same exact way. And everybody is called to love the same exact way. We're called to love as Christ has loved us. And to love across those boundaries that oftentimes segregate us and separate us. And sometimes that's a very hard call because some people have suffered and some people groups have suffered tragically and terribly. And it takes the power of the Spirit of God, the power of the Gospel, to be able to reach out and love those who have not loved you. You may recall uh, the story of John Perkins and how he was uh, shamelessly beat up by the Ku Klux Klan and how he reached out and sought to love those who beat him up and left him for dead. And how, interestingly enough, by the grace of God and by the gospel of God, he and the Klansmen who perpetrated his crime were able to write a book together called He's My Brother when they both came to faith in Christ. It's amazing what God can do in breaking down barriers. There's all kinds of barriers that can be brought up between whites and blacks, between blacks and Hispanics, between Chinese and Japanese, between whatever ethnicity there might be out there. And as God's people, we are called to look at the cross of Christ and to see this one who has spilled his blood on the ground to bring us together and make us one and make us brand new. And let that fill our vision more than anything else. You know, if you walk into a room and if your first thought is, I wonder if I'm going to be accepted. You know, I have this problem myself. If I walk into a room and feel, if my first thought is, do they accept me? Do they like me? That paralyzes a lot of your love. Instead, we need to recognize the fact that we have been made new. I've been bought with the blood of Jesus. I've been washed by the King of glory. I've been redeemed. I've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It makes no difference whether you like me or not. My objective is to love you. My objective is to reach out and love you in spite of how you treat me or how you look at me or how you don't look at me or don't talk to me. My objective is to love, and that's how it's got to be our objective. We can't see ourselves through the identity of culture primarily, but we must see ourselves through the identity of Christ primarily. And say, I have been washed. I am, I'm a child of the King. And so how can I serve? How can I love? How can I walk in love in spite of, despite what people may think or say, about me, or how they might reject me or perceive me. It doesn't really make a difference. What I have to be thinking about, what you have to be thinking about in your thoughts is that God loves me. God loves me. Who's more important than God? God's verdict over me is innocent, righteous, sinless. Jesus died for me. And that has to control. That has to rule. Paul said it's the love of Christ that constrains him. It pushes him. It nudges him. It says, Paul, get out there. Christ loves you. He gave himself up for you. Stop living for yourself. Live for the one who died and was raised again on your behalf. 
You ever, you ever go to a party and you're a wallflower? I was always a wallflower. I never danced. I can't remember when the first time it was that I danced, but I, I went through high school, puberty, all that stuff without dancing ever. I went home and danced. Did the Michael Jackson, did the moonwalk. I did all that stuff. Broke, broke dance, almost broke myself breaking dancing. But there comes a point where you get the push and you get the nudge. Met my wife. I was ready to dance. You know, it's like that with Jesus, right? You get loved. You get the love of God. And you're ready to move. You're ready to get down. In a good way, right? A holy get down. Don't get me wrong, folks. But you have to let the love of Jesus Christ, I have to let the love of Jesus Christ constrain us, move us, and so that means, by definition, that in the present, we have to be thinking daily about the love of God for us in Jesus Christ and letting that govern our identity. Who are you? Are you first your ethnic identity or identifiers, or are you first a brand new creation in Jesus Christ? Bought with the blood, clothed in the righteousness, filled with the Spirit, that's who you are. That's what Paul says. That's what Peter says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people called out of darkness into God's marvelous light that you might proclaim how excellent God is. That has to be what we get up desiring to do. I want to proclaim to the world how excellent Jesus is. I don't care whether they like me or not. I care if they're the same shade or same color, same hair. I have an excellent God who loves me, died for me. You ever try that? Get on the subway one day. Just shout it. I'm a part of a chosen race, a royal priest. See how many people say amen. They're going to think you're crazy. It's a free country, man. Do it. Try it. Come on. Let's go together. I'll do it with you. You stand on one side of the subway, I'll stand on the other side of the subway. We'll shout it. Chosen race. Royal priesthood, holy nation. Let us let them throw us out. Who cares? It's good stuff, man. I'm serious. If you want to do that, you call me. We'll do that. Right in the middle of the supermarket, man. Why not? You've been washed in the blood of Jesus. Is anything greater? I know you're an introvert. Who cares? Be a love bird. All right, I need to move on. Um, this is, we're in the present, right? <laughs> That's always true, right? <laughs> but in the outline, we're in the present. And so he's called us that he might, and in verse 16, it says that he might reconcile us. Now he gets to reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Whatever brought hostility before Christ, in your BC days, whatever alienated you from other people or other people from you, Jesus Christ has, has killed it by bringing you to God. He made peace between you and God. And he brought us together. Jesus' intention is to bring both of us to God in one body. In one body. Not you over there, me over here, someone else over there. One body. You know, if you woke up in the morning and all of your parts of your body were all over the house, you know, some in the closet, 
you know, you had a foot downstairs in the basement, another foot upstairs in the attic, and, you know, one hand over there in the kitchen, another hand someplace else, your torso someplace else, everything, everything was segregated. It'd be, it'd be kind of difficult to get up and get to work, wouldn't it? But we're one body through the cross. Jesus Christ has made us one through the cross. Turn to, turn to 1 Corinthians 12, if you would. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, verse 14, uh, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And so, so in the body of Christ, no one should be moved to say, no one should be allowed to say, I don't belong because I'm not like them or I don't have this particular gift. If you believe in Jesus, you're a member of the body, you belong. Amen. Nobody does not, be does not, not belong. Get that grammar right, boy. <laughs> Go back to English. Um, nobody can say I don't belong. As long as you belong to Jesus, you belong. If you go on in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it, it says uh, in verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. That's the second thing. Not only can we not say, I don't belong, we can't say to anyone else, I don't need you. We all need one another in the body of Christ. We all belong and we're all in need of one another in order to grow together the way God calls us to. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25, it says that there may be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same care for one another. That's why God built the body the way He did, is so that, so that there would be no division, but we would care for one another equally. Imagine... Um, if, if there was a train coming and your eyes and your ears gathered together and told your feet, there's no train coming. It would be catastrophic. We belong to one another. We've been placed in this body together and we're supposed to care for one another. Equally, Jesus has killed the hostility by His blood. And He has given us, it says, he, he, he came and preached peace to us who were far off and near, the Gentiles and the Jews, both got the same message of peace with God, and we both have the same access in the Spirit to the Father. And that's, that's important. We have access in the Spirit, in one Spirit. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In order for us to have real access to God together, we've got to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. God's Spirit has created a unity in the body of Christ. And we are, we are called to maintain that unity that He created. 
He's entrusted that unity to us. And inasmuch as we are eager to maintain that unity, we learn about the access that we have with the Father. You remember how uh, Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 6, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The access is broken when the unity and the bond is broken. Uh, we're supposed to be eager to maintain unity, not meager to maintain unity. You know, meager and eager are two different things. You know, slim pickings. We're supposed to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It says in 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse uh, 19, uh, it calls us uh, to, to love. It says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before God, before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And this comes in the context of a call to love one another as brothers in the body of Christ. And when we fail to do that, our confidence before God gets compromised. The assurance of being able to go to God. Jesus said, if you, if you come to offer something and you remember in your mind that there's a fractured relationship First go be reconciled. Then come bring your offering. It's the same thing with the coming to the table. If you know there's a fractured relationship in the body of Christ that needs, built, needs mending and it's been fractured and you're not working on it, go deal with that relationship first. Then come bring it to the table. Uh, it's, it's a table of communion, communing with one another. Um, we're fellow citizens. We're family. Um, in verse 18, it talks about how um, uh, for through Him we both have access to one Spirit and the Father. For so, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens. Everybody in the body of Christ has the same rights to the honor and the privileges that God gives to every single member, and that's what it means to maintain that unity. We have to see to it that that actually takes place, and this brings up issues of justice and within the body of Christ. Look at uh, verse 20 and, and 21, uh, 20 through 22. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, and this is important, please don't not get this, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We love that imagery. We're joined together and we're growing together into a holy temple in the Lord. But, but read it right, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows. When it's joined together, it grows. You see this borne out in Ephesians chapter 4. Same theme is being used. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says in verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's when each part in the body is contributing what God has given to them 
as their gifting, whether it's through their particular ethnicity or culture, it's when all of that comes together in Christ and each person is affirmed with what God has done in them and how God wants to use them and work through them and use their gifts to bless the body of Christ. When each part works together, that's what makes the body grow and build itself up in love. That's what produces this holy temple in the Lord. Um, in verse 22 it says, In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, imagery we love. We're a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Well, how does that come about? Chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth has been named. Look at where he's headed with this particular prayer. In verse chapter 3, verse 19, he says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we might be filled with the fullness of God. That's the same as that we might be built together into a dwelling place for God. And so what the Spirit of God is doing, back to chapter 3, verse uh, 16, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. I hope it could be said about all of us in this room that when people encounter us in our daily lives, what they get, uh, what they get the most from us is they get Jesus. They don't get our whiteness, they don't get our blackness, they don't get our whatever our ethnic, ethnic heritage might be. Primarily, what they get is Jesus coming through the particular beautiful filter that He has created. But they get Jesus. It's like a prism. You've got that light comes in and it has all these lights to come out. But they get Jesus primarily. That's what the Spirit of God is in you to do. That through the Spirit in your inner being so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. That you be rooted and grounded in love. That that's also what they would get. Jesus and Jesus' love. We heard a testimony today about how a woman had just generic sense of love, but they would get the love of Christ. And that, that we would be strengthened, we'd have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Notice how we can comprehend. We can't comprehend homogeneously. We've got to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we might be filled with the fullness of God. And so, in light of this, we're called to walk in a manner that's worthy. And we can conclude just by highlighting just a few things. Uh, but, but we're called in chapter 4 to walk in a way that we're all, everybody's a wordsmith. We all speak the truth in a loving way. And that helps us grow. We all keep a tight rein over our mouth. Look at what it says in verse, chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor because we're members of one another. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up and fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. We're against the anger that talks about don't let the, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Couples are often told, don't go to bed mad. It's true. You go to bed mad, you wake up mad. 
Don't go to bed mad. Stay up and fight. Work it out, right? Talk it out. Pray it out. Be kind. Be tender. Be loving. Be thankful. Be wise. Be worshipers. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. There's too much to talk about in one sermon, but in verse five, chapter 5, verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Notice the trajectory of this call, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, to the end that you might be singing melody to the Lord in your heart, that our coming together might lead us to worshiping God together. Husbands uh, loving their wives, wives submitting to their husbands, thankful that the sermon is not on that particular subject this morning. Yeah. It all starts with serving one another. Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know what that word reverence means? It means fear of Christ. It means awe of Christ. It means that you are so awestruck about what Christ has done for you that you look at one another in the body of Christ and you ask yourself one question. How can I outserve you? How can I serve you more than you serve me? And if everybody in the body of Christ is asking that same question, how can I outserve you? If couples get together and ask that question, how can I outserve you? If we wake up in the morning asking ourselves or telling our spouse, I'm going to outserve you today, I'm going to serve you, and the spouse is saying, no, I'm going to outserve you, I'm going to serve you. And if that becomes the posture of our life together, wow, it would be a, a completely different picture given to the world, a completely different experience that we have. It talks about children obeying their parents and parents raising and training their children, and, and then all of the walking stops. It talks about um, employers and employees, their relationship together, and living in such a way that people get Christ from you, people get love from you, people get the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then in chapter 6, verse 10, the walking stops and the standing begins. Standing in the victory. That's the only way we can stand in victory against the host of heaven, is if we've been walking this walk in light of what Christ has done on the cross for us. Let's pray. Our Father, in Christ's name, we pray that you would unite us deeper. We can't be united more deeper than what you've already done, Lord God, but help us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace by loving one another equally. Help us, Lord, to not look out in the world and complain and murmur about the things that we might see but to know that justice begins right here in the body of Christ. And inasmuch as it starts here, the world will wake up and see it. But if it doesn't start here, the world will continue to be a predominantly unjust place. So Father, help us to let judgment begin first with the household of faith and be just in our relationships, be loving in our relationships. And even if we have been doing that, like it says in Thessalonians, to do it even more so the world might see that we are truly disciples of Jesus Christ. We ask this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.